Hello and welcome back to Who Asked You, the Daily's first talk show. We're your hosts, Gabby and Marissa. All right, we are going to start today with some quick news hits of what's been going on since the last time we recorded. Everyone's favorite, who is that? John Delaney uh, went in on Joe Biden saying he has, quote, no new ideas. Uh, Marissa, what's your, what's your quick react? <laughs> um, he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, does Delaney have any ideas besides question mark? Like, I don't even remember his platform. His whole- so I feel like he's kind of punching up there. <laughs> The big political news today, although it was a little bit of a downer, I'd say, was that Robert Mueller testified about his report. The whole thing was like supposed to be made for TV and just wasn't. As I tweeted earlier, I really don't understand what's going on with the Mueller report or anything. I know it's about collusion, question mark, impeachment, some big words being thrown around, (laughs) obstruction of justice. The most exciting part was that there's this, like, there's this memo or something from the Justice Department that says that, like, a special prosecutor can't indict a sitting president to, like, it'd be up to Congress. But Mueller basically left the door open to indicting Trump after he leaves office. So that was basically the most interesting part. A girl, Christy, she was talking um, to potential voters in where else? Youngstown, Ohio. She answered a question about white supremacy, um, which I thought was interesting. She kind of like framed it in a way that was like all of the things that you guys might be experiencing from income inequality and low wages and low job security. Those things are all things that people of color or um, other marginalized people might face, but like not just because like they have a bad situation, but also because of like their color or something else. So I thought it was an interesting like parallel to draw. I think she did a good job talking to white people about race, which is always like an interesting endeavor. She definitely like tried to milk it with a lot of Twitter. We'll see how it carries over into the debates when they talk about race again, I would say. Yeah. Speaking of uh, racism, obviously this week, Donald Trump tweeted about four freshman members, Democratic members of the House, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, basically saying that they hate America, they should go back to where they came from, widely criticized as racist, because it was. Um, <laughs> like, that's not an opinion, that's a fact. Anyway, there's this whole situation of who's going to call Trump racist and who wasn't, and Elizabeth Warren says she's enough to look into Trump's heart or any of his bones, which, you know, many candidates defer to about racism, uh, to know if he's racist because his actions are racist. Um, How'd you feel about that? I mean, Joe Biden and his racist bone structure were quaking as she said that, (laughs) especially going into these debates. We're trying to see a lot of difference between the candidates and their platforms, and I think it will come down to being radical and who they support in Congress and what kind of ideologies they support. I also like the point it's about actions and not like looking into someone's heart because as we've said many times in our little anatomy (laughs) lessons on this podcast, the whole notion that like some part of your body is racist, it's stupid. It's about what you do. So there was a poll in New Hampshire recently. They asked a question like, what candidates do you view favorably? And Elizabeth Warren was among the highest and so was Kamala Harris. But among which candidates do you like? Elizabeth Warren and Kamala were among the lowest which just further goes to show you can think a woman is smart and view her favorably, whatever that means, but still don't like her. And there was that study that was like, who would you vote for? A lot of people put Elizabeth Warren, for example, but then they're like, who do you think America wants as president? And people really thought that like America as a whole was not ready for a woman president. And that is so stupid. It's just like, if you like this person and you think that they're smart and they're capable and they're qualified, then you should vote for them or you should support them. Like, it doesn't matter what this weird, vague, general notion of, like, what America wants is because America wants what it votes for. 
if you like them, chances are probably other people like them, unless you like Tim Ryan, in which case you're alone. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> yeah, I just hate this whole trying to predict what other people are going to do is just a fruitless exercise. And I think you should just vote for the person you like the best, and a reference to policy and character and not yeah. just like you can get a beer with. Although I do think you could get a beer with Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> oh my God, was she shotgun a beer like at a tailgate? That'd be so funny. I mean, when she like announced her campaign, she like Instagram live drinking a beer and everyone was like, this is so fake. Which candidate do you think would be most likely to show up at like a Northwestern tailgate? Beto. Interesting. I feel like, no, I feel like he would like show up, be like, hey guys, like what's up? And then just kind of stand in the corner and like look at his phone or something. I saw today that apparently uh, there was like a mosh pit at a fundraiser and he was like moshing. It was like literally so sweaty. Is he like four or like 70? Like I really can't tell. The youth pastor energy continues. No, literally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Who would be like most out of place? I like a tailgate. I think it'd be Tulsi the TS for troops. Tulsi would be like, I didn't fight for this. I feel like John Hickenlooper would literally call the cops. <laughs> I mean, Kamala would call the cops as well. John but- Hickenlooper is the cops. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the racist attack against the four congresswomen. Um, Marissa, I know you have a lot of thoughts about that because the outline is a sprawling. So go ahead. Like, this situation has really just irked me from the beginning. For those who have been following the news, you've seen that, quote, the squad, which is made up of the four freshman congresswomen, and Nancy Pelosi was said to be at the head of it, probably because she's the speaker, but I'm sure it's a lot of the more moderate Democrats as well, they have kind of been in like this party infighting thing that a lot of people have said is unproductive, but I don't think so because I feel like we all know that everyone wants to impeach Trump. I think their concern is, is this politically advantageous? It does seem like a distraction, but I think in reality, what's coming to head is something that a lot of people predicted a few months ago and maybe even last year, that there is a huge like generational divide. And so Democrats are kind of at this impasse where younger Democrats are kind of sticking to their principles and like sticking to the whole we want radical change so we're going to enact it by passing all these policies and sticking up for what we believe in things like that and the older generation of democrats is kind of driven still by like a fear of going too radical and losing support and kind of staying more moderate and stuff and that makes sense kind of how they were elected you know the democrats went to the left and then they kind of lost it all in the 70s. So I I understand where that fear comes from for them. But yeah, like you can't like hide in the center forever. These four women are not the first people to be radical and they're not the last. And I think that especially the centrist Democrats, they need to really take a hard look at their own policies. That's the thing that's dragging down the party more than a few outspoken women. And what's struck, what's difficult for me is this concept of the median voter theory that like you have to move to the middle to attract as many people as possible, right? So it's like, Candidate A is X point on the spectrum. It's like negative one to one. Candidate A is at negative 0.3 and candidate B is at 0.5. The idea is candidate A should win because they get more people like mm-hmm. mathematically on that scale. But the issue is Democrats are still playing that median voter theory game where they're moving to the middle to accommodate the centrist Democrats and the moderate voters, whereas the Republicans in Congress have to do the opposite. Everything they do is to accommodate the House Freedom mm-hmm. Caucus and the far right who will derail their proposals. So the Republicans have to move everything to the right to accommodate the extremists, and the Democrats have to move everything to the right to accommodate the moderates. So it just fundamentally disadvantages the Democrats, by the way. Oh, definitely. We're playing this game. And I understand Nancy Pelosi's like in a difficult position to manage this entire caucus. At the same time, calling out these members of your party that are really popular and that are using social media in this way to connect with this whole new generation mm-hmm. of voters that, frankly, the Democratic Party needs. Oh, definitely. I just don't think is smart politics. No. So that's what I struggle with. And this Democratic infighting, you know, say what you want about the Republicans. When they need to get behind somebody, they will. Mm-hmm. 
But I agree with your takeaway. I think the centrist Democrats are the ones who need to look at themselves and say, what do I stand for? Because if you're standing for the middle, the middle is constantly shifting towards the right. So if you're just standing in the middle and the middle's moving out from under you and you're moving with it, what do you stand for? And that's literally gotten us nowhere. And so it's kind of like a restructuring of the Democratic Party or reconfiguring what that looks like. Again, in a broken system where politics is really messed up, obviously. But for what we have, the system we have, there's going to be a restructuring of it, of the Democratic Party. And I think that if this, quote, infighting causes more people like AOC and Omar to start running for Congress and start running for their local politician roles, I think that's good. There's always been like crosswords in these like major political moments. So when like the civil rights movement was happening, the Black Panthers and SNCC versus MLK's movement, or like the suffragettes and during the women's rights movement and like women who wanted more freedom, but they didn't see voting as the way to get that, stuff like that. There's always been in large movements people who are centrist and people who are more radical. To your point, there's room for both of that and maybe more sides of the spectrum in the Democratic Party right now. But what they need to do is get together on these large issues and say that they're together. And I think the centrist people need to start moving to the left when it comes to like a larger sense of issues like immigration policy right. or wage equality and stuff like that. Or the Democratic Party needs to not stand in the way of primary challengers. Once you get into Congress, you don't automatically get, that's why we have elections. Right. You don't just get to keep it as a courtesy. So. And this like yeah. movement is not unique to like the history in general. And I think it will mean something, like you said, in four years and six years when these Congress people are being elected out potentially by people who look and act more like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. I want to be able to look back at this time, like in a decade or so, if we're still alive, thanks to climate change. (laughs) I want to look back and say like, wow, like that was a watershed moment for the Democratic Party 2016 through 2020. That was a moment where people realized that more types of people could get their voices in the mix. More types of people could start fighting against the status quo and rebuild the status quo. And I think the Democrats are playing this political game with rules that just don't exist anymore. One of President Obama's fundamental missteps in his first term was he spent way too long trying to get bipartisan support for the ACA when that was never going to happen and they just needed to focus on the Democratic caucus. And that's because that took so long and then when the Democrats lost seats, he lost that policy window and then we weren't able to get some of the big sweeping reforms he wanted again. Democratic policies are popular. People want to raise minimum wage. People want to hold like big corporations and banks accountable. People want to remove student loans. Like All these things have been poll tested and are popular. That's where people like the quote unquote squad are helpful because they're great at using social media and firing people up by sending out like a wallpaper that says boy buy, like vote, like nobody cares about that. That's not going to fire up the base. The momentum of young people right now like is progressivism, make people excited about it, make people want to vote. That's why President Obama wants like get another candidate that inspires people and that stands for something other than just like not being Trump. And then I also just want to talk about Republicans using the Jews TM as a shield like with this whole racism stuff. And there was an article in GQ by, I think her name's Tali Levin, that I would recommend that makes a really good point about how like these Republican senators who are like, I will always stand up for the Jewish people, like literally Josh Hawley in Missouri was like, you'll have to carry me out on a slab before I stop fighting for the Jewish people. And it's like, <laughs> lit- what? Like These people, these Republicans from these like Western sparsely populated states barely even have Jewish constituents. So the idea that you're like defending these Jewish constituents that you probably don't even know, it just shows what a farce this whole situation is. To them, they're like, Israel equals Jews. Like Donald Trump literally said like Israel is your country to like American Jews. Right. 
Like, no, America is my country. This whole Republican entanglement with Israel and like equating Israel to the Jewish people and being like, oh, since I defend Israel, therefore I defend the Jewish people, even though like so many American Jews are rightly critical of Israel. To me, like that's anti-Semitic. And like being Jewish doesn't just mean, oh, I like love Israel from a national security perspective. Like that <laughs> right. Trump has obviously said many anti-Semitic things throughout his life. Mm-hmm. All these Republicans have been like very conspicuously silent. And it, like when there were attacks in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and other places or just saying like thoughts and prayers, whatever, <laughs> when like I'm sure they've never even like, right. heard a Jewish prayer or like really interacted with Jewish people other than their coworkers. So the whole thing is just like really disgusting to me and it just frustrates me to no end. My overall takeaway is that it seems like Trump is trying to use some of this power and momentum to further divide the Democratic Party along lines that probably already existed even before he got to office, whether that means that the squad has to maybe reconcile on certain issues or another, or whether it means that the 30, 40 centrist Democrats need to get it together. Get their priorities straight. Or have priorities, other than just, like, being a nuisance. (laughs) Please, for the love of God, Democrats, like, don't nominate a centrist, because, like, that's how we got into this mess in the first place, is, like, placating all these centrists. And we will not survive. (laughs) Speaking of candidates... CNN really tried to milk this for ratings. It was like the NBA lottery. So who are we going to see on night one? We've got Marianne, Crystals Will Heal Us, Williamson, Tim, <laughs> Ibags, Ryan, Amy, Salad Comb, Klobuchar, <laughs> uh, Mayor Pete, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Beto, Tired Eyes O'Rourke, John Who, Hickenlooper, <laughs> John Double Who, Delaney, um, and Steve Bullock, who's a newcomer. And so what I'm looking for in night one, obviously I'm looking for anything that comes out of Marianne's mouth because <laughs> we know you're that's Marianne entertaining. Stan. That's super entertaining. I think this is going to be critical for Beto. If he has another like tired, awkward performance, uh, he's already starting to lose a lot of support, even mm-hmm. in like Texas, which should be like his base. I think this is like really critical for him. Oh, definitely. Uh, I'm curious about that. Um, I'm curious to see, I think and everyone's curious to see um, Bernie and Warren on the same stage because right only one of them can really emerge as like the progressive option. Um, and Warren's been gaining momentum. Bernie's been kind of losing momentum. Obviously, like the big difference is like Bernie is a socialist and Warren believes in like saving capitalism from itself, essentially, or like reforming within working within the system for reform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really curious to see how they play head to head. Is it going to be a lot of agreement? Who's going to try to come after who? And just like style, you know, Bernie is a shouter. <laughs> Warren like speaks softly, but carries a big stick, I guess. She has BD, so um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm curious about in night one. Tell me about night two. So we have Michael Bennett, we have Kirsten Gillibrand, we have Julian Castro, Cory Booker, Biden, Kamala at the top here, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, the environmental king, <laughs> and Bill de Blasio, the screamo king. <laughs> Definitely everyone's going to be looking for that Biden-Harris matchup again. I would think that Cory Booker's also going to try to get in on that as well. And so having like two black candidates um, on the same stage when talking about race might be pretty interesting. Um, I hope they just like going on I him think... from both sides. I would love that. Physically oh, both sides. <laughs> I know. They're literally like sandwiching him in terms of like order. So I really just hope it's a back and forth before his non-racist brain His non-racist neck will be on stage. <laughs> it literally snaps. <laughs> I feel like people like um, Castro like have something to prove because he definitely took a big spike after the first round of debates. And so it'll be interesting to see his energy and his policy platform. And I think this is huge for Biden. Uh, Biden dropped 10 points after the first debate. If he has another like meandering loss looking performance here, 
that's huge. So this, he like, there's a lot of pressure on him to perform well. And with Corey and Kamala on either side of him, I think that will be interesting to watch. Money minute. <laughs> so Buttigieg is definitely still up there. He has cash to spare. And Warren's still really going at it with these small donors. There were a few candidates who like didn't even cross the million dollar mark. <laughs> <laughs> they should use that million dollars, get themselves a glass of wine, and then sign up for the Senate because get themselves some healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> also, it was really interesting. Like, definitely the debates proved to be very significant. Julian Castro got a million dollars following the debate, which doesn't sound like a lot, but considering he was at a million dollars before the debate. I'll tell you, it hasn't stopped him from emailing me, asking me for money every friggin' day. <laughs> Gabrielle, I need you. <laughs> Gabrielle, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. <laughs> Time for our final segment, something fun. There was a Politico article that came out at 5.03 in the morning where these journalists went through the latest round of FEC disclosures of campaign charges and came across the sort of strangest things they found. So we play a little game. I'm gonna ask marissa some questions and she's going to make some guesses as to who spent money on these things basically this is an extension of money minute ka -ching, ka -ching. whose campaign account paid two thousand eleven dollars and thirty cents to a self-help movie company called streaming for the soul that offers titles online including psychic mediumship and living the luminous life marianne yes <laughs> she paid the company for videography editing all right which candidate had the biggest bill for private jet travel, Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg? Oh, Biden. Booty judge. What? <laughs> he spent $299,000 on private jet <gasps> travel. Biden spent $256,000. One of the big takeaways from the article is there's a lot of payment to digital spending. So like mm -hmm. um, $4 million total was spent into direct payments to Facebook for ads. But one candidate decided to spend $100,198 on billboards. <laughs> and it was also this candidate's single biggest expense. Was it Amy Klobuchar or Tulsi Gabbard? Oh, I want to say Klobuchar because Midwest billboard culture is like none other. So I'm going to go Amy. <laughs> it was Tulsi. No, Did I see you're where you're kidding. coming from. As someone who's scared of the Illinois signs that say, like, buckle up or die, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing that Tulsi spent the most money on in her entire campaign is billboards. Like, billboards in, like, mainland or in Hawaii? Unclear. <laughs> it's all over the place. So, a lot of um, candidates stick to hotels uh -huh. um, when they're traveling. Three candidates spent money on Airbnb. Um, one candidate only spent... $1,900, but one candidate spent 13000 and another <laughs> candidate spent 16000 Which three candidates, and I'll, I'll give this to you correct if you can get two out of three, use Airbnb instead of hotels? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I, I know I'm going to get all of these wrong. Is Andrew Yang on there? Yes, he okay, was number okay. one. Oh, no! $16,000. Of course. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, um... One of them is pretty surprising. Okay, I feel like a surprising person would be like Sanders or Biden or someone for me. Mm, one of those. Was it Bernie Sanders? Yes, he was number two, $13,000. Okay. Wow, okay. you're on a roll. Is this person surprising as well? Um, This one's less surprising to me. I'm going to assume it's not one of the smaller candidates. So let's go. <laughs> Pick one. I really feel like a centrist Democrat right now, really straddling the fence. <laughs> um, I'm going to go Jillibrand. Beto. 
Oh, that was impressive, okay. though. That was very impressive. Which candidate spent $550 on books at Barnes & Noble <laughs> charged to their campaign account? <laughs> the titles included Evicted by Matthew Desmond and Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Um, is it not Higginlooper? Yeah, it's been it. Which candidate spent $699 on a single cake from the Smith Island <laughs> Baking Company? Was it Tulsi Gabbard or John Delaney? Um, it's enough cake to serve 170 people. Well, considering that's the amount of supporters that John Delaney has, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> it was John Delaney, correct? Yes! <laughs> he bought one for every single one of his supporters. This is a good one, too. Which candidate charged their campaign account $500 for car repairs? Cory Booker or Steve Bullock? As Steve Bullock was driving his campaign into the ground by running, I feel like he damaged his car along the way. So I would go Steve Bullock. All the- Wait, no, okay. With the Jersey traffic, I feel like it might be Booker. It was Cory Booker, but it was to a Washington, D.C.-based auto body shop. So interesting. Which candidate spent $12,075 on paella? <laughs> was it Marianne Williamson or Joe Biden? <laughs> Marianne? No, it was Joe. What? <laughs> he spent $12,000 on food from the Los Angeles-based Got Paella. <laughs> he launched his campaign for a fundraiser in Southern California. Which candidate spent $112,890 at the Hilton Miami downtown during the first debate? Was it Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg? Well, I would hope that it's Pete Buttigieg because he has a lot more money. It was Pete. That's because he brought out like his entire campaign staff and they stayed there for like a bunch of days and did a bunch of planning. Which candidate spent $328 at a minor league baseball game? <laughs> Eric Swalwell or Beto O'Rourke? I feel like Beto would have done it to like try to appease the masses that like don't exist because he thinks that baseball is still America's like sport, even though it's clearly not anymore. <laughs> you are correct. It's because yes. he ran a promotion inviting fans to watch Field of Dreams after an Iowa Cubs minor league baseball game. Are you kidding me? I don't know why that was a thing. Well, we'll see you guys next time during the debates. Literally nobody asked us, but here we are.